you can be seated and uh, ask if you would uh, turn to our text for this morning, which is from Mark chapter 4, the very end of uh, this passage, verses 35 through 41. It's printed for you uh, in the worship guide to enable you to follow along. We, we are completely convinced uh, that there, the only thing of value, the only authority we have as we preach to you week in and week out is in the Word of God. Not in our own thoughts, not in our own ideas. And so we want to have in front of us God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are grateful, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who has willingly and freely and graciously made yourself known. We are glad that you have not left us in this world to fend for ourselves, to try to figure out things for ourselves and our own capacity, our own power, our own ingenuity. We thank you for that. And at the same time, we confess that foolishly we've tried to do just that very thing. We've tried to live in this world as if we were sufficient. Lord, uh, by your grace... If we find the Spirit of God at work in our lives this morning, we repent of that. We, we long to repent of that and again come to you like little children and say, Oh, Father, will you speak to us? Will you help us? And so, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for it because in it you have shown us and you have told us the good news that Jesus Christ has died for sinners and has been raised from the dead, that he rules and reigns over the heavens and the earth, and that he is pleased and he is able to draw sinners into that kingdom where we will reign with him one day. Lord, give us eyes to see that. Give us ears to hear it. Bow our knees before Jesus, the great King, even this morning. And incline our hearts toward him. Give us lives that that are full of the fruits of service to him, we pray. If any of this is to happen, if any of this at all, if anything good and lasting is to come of our meeting together today, Lord, we need you. We need you to be present. We need your spirit to be moving through this room and acting sovereignly and powerfully deeply, deeply in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that that would happen. Open us up. Use your word, we pray. Cause it to have every effect that you've intended. In Christ's name, amen. We're continuing uh, our study of the gospel according to Mark. And as I said, we're here at uh, the end of chapter 4. We're coming to a story that is likely very familiar to most of us, if not uh, at least somewhat familiar to all of us. It's a story that if you've grown up in the church, you've heard countless times. It's a story that if you're a child, you've, you've heard it, no doubt, in various forms. But if you have heard this a thousand times, uh, you haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet. So let's give our attention to God's word. Let's listen to him as he speaks to us. On that day when evening had come, 
he, that is Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark 4 is one of only two major teaching sections in this gospel. In this chapter, we've been seeing now this teaching ministry of Jesus as he teaches many things about the kingdom of God in the form of parables to his disciples and others who were gathered around him to listen. And Mark seems to say here that all this teaching we've been looking at for the past two weeks from Mark 4, Jesus has been doing on this one particular day. It's been a very full day of teaching. Jesus has been surrounded by a large crowd of people uh, along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, so large, in fact, that as they pressed in on him, Jesus has gotten into a boat and has pushed away just a, just a short distance from the shore and stands in the boat, has been all day, it seems, standing in this boat teaching those who had gathered to hear him. But now evening had come and we're told that Jesus wanted to, to push off and to go to the other side of, of the lake, of the sea, to go to the other shore. And so we're told the disciples took him out into the sea just as he was, which I take to mean that just as he was standing there in this boat, the disciples got in there with him, and in that same boat they continue on out into the sea uh, for the purpose of crossing the sea. We actually have a pretty good idea of what this boat would have been like. You can, you can look it up online. I actually looked at some things about it this week. Um, uh, some Bible software that, that I have that's very helpful I actually had even more information, but you can just Google it. You can actually, it sounds strange to me, but you can Google Jesus boat. And you'll find that in 1986, uh, a couple of fishermen uh, in the Sea of Galilee made a remarkable discovery. There had been a drought, the water had receded quite a bit, and they discovered uh, what was visible to their eye was, in, in the end, a portion, a, a great portion of the hull of a boat that was subsequently dated to the first century. And it's very likely, whether or not this is the precise boat, of course we have no way of knowing, but it's almost certain that this is the, the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples were in at that point. It was about 26 and a half feet long. I'm not very good at judging distances, but it's about 26 and a half feet long. Uh, it was about uh, seven and a half feet wide, about four and a half feet deep. Very simple wooden boat, probably oak and cedar, could hold about 15 people inside. So they're in this sort of boat, not a tiny boat, but, but a fairly simple, small boat. And they set out 
uh, in the sea at the end of a long day of ministry, we're told there were other boats that were with them, no doubt as a result of the many, many people who had gathered around Jesus. And so Jesus in this boat with his disciples and other people in their boats uh, set out across the Sea of Galilee. And you can begin to think after a long day of, of ministry, of labor, of speaking, of interacting, that you might be very relieved to finally get in the boat and quietly begin to make your way across the sea at the end of a long day. But as we discover, it was not uh, a calm sail across the lake. Mark tells us in verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already beginning to fill with water. Now, the Sea of Galilee, you may know, is about 600 feet below sea level. Uh, it sits in this basin surrounded by mountains and, and hills, and it's sort of a large bowl. Uh, it's uh, very similar to compare it to something we would be more familiar with. Uh, Lake Oconee, not far from here, uh, is about, uh, I had to look this up, I didn't know this off the top of my head, about a 30 square mile surface area lake. Uh, Lake Lanier, a bit larger at 58 square miles. Well, the Sea of Galilee, a bit larger than both of those, about 64 square miles, a large lake. So don't, don't think uh, small pond. It's a very large lake. At its deepest, it's a, over 140 feet deep. So this is a, a substantial lake. And what was very common given its situation is that fierce windstorms could arise and could be very violent, which is exactly what happened to Jesus and his disciples. A great windstorm, we're told, arose. And it must have been very serious because if we consider who's aboard, you've got at least four professional fishermen. You've got Peter, and you've got Andrew, and you've got James and John. And apparently from the story, as Mark tells it to us, they're completely freaking out. They had been on uh, the shores of this sea when Jesus called them to follow him. They had, without any doubt, spent countless hours on this water, had navigated it, knew it like the back of their hands, would have dealt with many a storm, but apparently this one was exceptionally great, like one they had never seen before, begins to violently toss the boat about, and it's filling with water. And to make matters worse, the one person who could do anything about it was asleep. And we're told this in verse 38, that Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Now, this, this account is present in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but only Mark gives us this kind of detail. They all tell us that Jesus was asleep, but Mark tells us where Jesus was in the stern. I don't know why boat people have such strange vocabulary. They can't just say back. They have to say stern, but Jesus is in the back of the boat on a cushion, and he's asleep in the midst of this, this storm. This is something Peter saw with his own eyes. He was there in the boat, recorded it, uh, rehearsed it to Mark, who now records it in his gospel. And Jesus is lying down in the midst of the storm. They're all terrified. The boat's being tossed about. It's filling with water. The wind is howling. The waves are crashing. And Jesus lies in the back of the boat on a cushion asleep. How? How does he do this? Well, he's completely exhausted. But he's also completely in control. And therefore completely Unafraid. Now, the disciples, how do they handle it? 
Matthew and Mark and Luke all record their responses to Jesus sleeping in the midst of the storm. And it's interesting because they all say something different. It's not because there's some contradiction uh, or anything like that. I think if we read through the accounts, we in fact need to understand that they said all of the things that are recorded by these writers of the Gospels. But you can imagine there was a lot of screaming, there was a lot of panicking, there were a lot of people saying a lot of things at once. And so when Matthew and Mark and Luke later sit down and record these things as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to do, then they record what different things they themselves said or heard. Matthew says, uh, the disciples said, save us, Lord, we are perishing, a prayer, prayer for help. Uh, Luke says that the disciples say, master, master, we are perishing, this cry of, of danger, recognition of their, their need. But what does Mark tell us? The disciples wake Jesus up, no doubt roughly, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? James Moffat, whose uh, paraphrase of the New Testament is sometimes good, sometimes not so good, captures it well here when he says, Teacher, are we to drown for all you care? They actually rebuke Jesus. They rebuke him, they accuse him of not caring. It's not simply that they're afraid of the storm. That's bad enough given who's in the boat with them. But there's this deeper sin underneath. Jesus doesn't actually love us. He doesn't care about us. If he loved us, he'd do something about this. The fact that he's not acting means that he doesn't care. I think we need to pay careful attention to that because I'm convinced that we can find that each of us traced in our own thinking, in our own hearts, that tendency, that same tendency in our own lives. When the storm is raging, whatever form that may take, we tend to have a certain outcome in mind that would prove that God really cares. But when time passes and the storm continues to blow, perhaps it intensifies Our anticipated outcome is not realized. God doesn't act in the way that you would like him to. How do you respond then? It's in precisely those moments that you find the the true stuff in your heart exposed as it really is. Do you grumble and complain? Do you become impatient and angry? Do you lose heart, become discouraged? Do you become envious of others? We could go on, but what's at the root of all of it? You don't really like what God is doing. You're upset with him because you want him to do it differently. And you're not sure you trust him with the future because it doesn't seem like he's doing anything to help right now. But let me ask you this. Why was Jesus in the boat in the first place? Because the Father had sent him into the world to save his people. Jesus was in the boat, able to be dishonored by the rudeness of these disciples, subjecting himself to their doubts and their accusations. Why? Because he had willingly come from heaven to earth to suffer and to die and to save every one the Father had given to him. He had come not simply to deal with this storm, which he would, but to be thrown into a much greater storm, to be thrown into the storm 
of God's holy wrath and to bear that storm in his own body on the cross at Calvary in order to bring his people out of death and into life. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care that they're perishing. He's there because they're perishing. But if you have any true knowledge of yourself, you can see that you've done the same thing over and over and over, thinking and living and speaking as if he doesn't care, as if he doesn't regard your danger, as if he doesn't know your need, forgetting the incredible cost that his love has paid and doubting his covenant promises, which are always true in Christ. So in their fear, the disciples wake Jesus up and Jesus awakes and he responds and we see his response in verse 39 and it's incredible. We're told he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. What in the world is he doing? Who, who does this? Who speaks to the weather? If any one of you were to walk outside in a storm and say, shh, 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 just shh. I don't know what would happen, but it, there would be a rush of concern in some way. <laughs> no one does this. No one addresses danger and chaos and threats and just says, stop. It's precisely what Jesus does. He opens his mouth. With his words, he changes the weather. And in doing this, he demonstrates he has authority over the weather, that he has absolute authority over creation. It poses no threat to him. It poses no threat to him. It has no power over him, so he has no fear of it whatsoever. It's as if he's in complete control, which, of course, he is. Battering these men, it's his storm. And these men are his, too. And so Jesus opens his mouth, and he speaks. He rebukes the storm. He just talks, and immediately, what does Mark tell us? There was a great calm. Suddenly. J.C. Ryle says this, Those words were the words of him who first created all things. The elements knew the voice of their master, and like obedient servants were quiet at once. Jesus, with the same voice that he used to call this wind and these waves into being, silences them with a word. There are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of God's mastery over the wind and the waves. We read one of them this morning. And the disciples, let's remember, would have been very familiar with these scriptures. So they're standing in the boat with Jesus. They've just witnessed him do what no human being has ever done before or since. And I can't prove this, but I would be very surprised if they weren't, at least some of them, standing there thinking about Psalm 65, verse 7, which says that God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. 
Or perhaps they remembered Psalm 77, 16, which says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. And now as they stand in this boat, because there's no way they were sitting, they stand in this boat, which is now on a very calm sea, a very quiet sea. They're standing face to face with the God of whom these psalms speak. With the Lord of heaven and earth, with Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's in the boat right in front of their faces. This is who Jesus is. This is part of why he led them out into the sea for this event. Jesus is not surprised by this storm. He brought it about and he led them into it in part to show them his identity. He is the Lord. The disciples had rebuked Jesus for not caring, but Jesus had brought them into the storm because he knew that they needed to know what the waves and the wind already knew, that Jesus is their Lord and Master. And that's why there's another rebuke that needs to take place, which is what we see in verse 40. As Jesus rebukes his disciples for their fear and their unbelief, he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I think we can read this, and we can think, I mean, Jesus, really? Can you cut him a little bit of slack? I mean, what are they supposed to do? We, we, we can read this rebuke, and we can think, it's just not fair. It's, it's too strong. What do you want from them, Jesus? The boat was filling with water. They're, they're in the terrible storm. Whatever they're doing is not helping. There's real danger. It's not, it's not imaginary danger. What did Jesus expect from them? What were they doing wrong? What should they have done? Why did he rebuke them? And I think if we consider it carefully, we can realize that this is what was wrong. That for the disciples, as so often is the case for us, the storm, the circumstances had become very, very great. And Jesus had become very, very small. They'd been with Jesus Remember, for some time already, they, they were with him when they had seen and heard remarkable things from him. They'd witnessed him heal an unclean man in the synagogue. They were there in Peter's home when Jesus healed his mother-in-law and raised her up to serve the rest of the group. They were there when he healed from sun up to sundown countless people who came to him who were sick and who were filled with demons, and they witnessed Jesus heal them and cast out the evil spirits. They were there when he taught the scriptures to the astonishment of everybody who heard him. They were, they were in the house again when the paralytic man was lowered through the ceiling, and Jesus not only raised him up healthy, but said, your sins are forgiven. They were there. They heard all of this. They saw it. They experienced something of the breaking in of the power of God's kingdom. And now what happens? They're in a storm on the sea, and they totally lose it. They should have begun to put it together, Jesus is saying. They should have believed that Jesus would provide because he had shown himself to be trustworthy and mighty and gentle and compassionate. They should have believed that the one who called them on the seashore would not forsake them in that very sea. And that's what real faith is. This is what faith does. Real faith is convinced that God will always continue to do more than we could ask or imagine. 
real faith is convinced that whatever God does is better than whatever you want him to do. God will often do things that you don't want him to do. He will often go against your desires. But if you're his child, it will never be for your ill, but for your good. Whatever you want, whatever you hope for, whatever you think is best, God will always do better. Real faith knows this to be true, and then, by God's grace, lives accordingly regardless of the circumstances. This is why Jesus led them into the storm in the first place. It may seem like a severe test, and to some degree it is severe, but no more severe than necessary. Jesus knows how prone they are to doubt him like he knows how prone you are and I am to doubt him. He knows our weakness. He knows our unbelief. He knows those things like a good physician knows disease when he sees it and he always has the right prescription in exactly the right dose. So I would suggest to us this morning that when we think, when you think, when you find these thoughts in your mind, even if you know they shouldn't be there and shouldn't be entertained, that God's dealing too severely with you. God, this is too hard. Why are you doing this? Then here's a better way to think and pray. Lord, this is too hard for me. I feel like I'm being consumed by these things. I'm weak. I'm afraid. I I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to do. I'm even tempted to think you've forgotten me. I'm tempted to think that you're being unkind, that you don't love me. But in your word, you promise to love me forever. You promise not to let me go. And at the cross, I see how far your love has gone for me. So help me not to doubt you. Help me not to doubt your word. Help me to trust you and submit to you. I know that you see, Lord, how deep my unbelief goes. So as painful as it will be, please keep uprooting it. I know that you're at work in my life. I know that you're redeeming me. So help me not to lose sight of that. I know that you're worthy of my complete trust. So please keep me firm in your grace no matter what comes to me. That is how we ought to think in the midst of the boat, in the midst of the storm, in the presence of the Savior. Just yesterday, I ran across this quote. God is always as drastic as necessary, but as gentle as possible. God will always... Do you know this is what it means if you're a believer in Christ, that God loves you with a jealous love, that He's a jealous God? It means he won't stop coming after you because he loves you and he will have you all to himself. If you are a believer, that's your great joy in this life and the life to come, that God would have you for himself, that you would be totally his. And your great sorrow in this life, and it comes in so many forms, is that you're not yet totally committed to him, that there are parts of your life that are self-absorbed and that are pushing against what God's doing, and you're grieved by that even as you do it. So it's your great joy to hear him say, I will not fail. You will be mine and I will be yours. I will not share you with another. It's good to be loved with a jealous love like that, but it's painful to be loved with a jealous love like God's because he comes after you and he knows those places in your life that need to be pushed. And you say, ah, it hurts, God. And he says, yes, I know it hurts. 
because it's right there that you're resisting me, but it's right there that it needs to be changed. And so because I love you, I won't stop pushing, but my pushing and probing and prodding will be restorative and not destructive. God is always as drastic as necessary, but as gentle as possible. If you're his adopted child, he's always, always working to make you more like his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't yet belong to him. You don't know God as your father. You don't know Jesus as your savior, your Jesus. And I hope you can hear in all of this a sincere invitation because it is a sincere invitation to come and to to take Jesus Christ to be your own. He is willing, He is able to be yours as you come to Him and confess your sin and your need of Him, your need of His salvation. The fact that your need is far greater than what you think it is. It's as great as He says it is. A need for a divine salvation. And then as you come to Him to follow Him and to obey Him, to trust that He will save you, and He will, and He'll be with you all the way to the end. So Jesus leads His disciples into the storm. He sleeps. They rebuke Him. He rebukes the storm. Then He rebukes them. But that's not the end of the story. Because the story ends, and this is true in all three Gospels where it appears, the story ends with another question. Back in verse 38... The disciples ask a fearful question. Don't you care, Lord? But the last question, the one here in verse 41, is even more fearful. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? This is what they think when they realize that they've come face to face with the unrivaled divine power of the Son of God. Who is this? They're overcome. Like Moses was overcome, like Isaiah was overcome, like so many others have been overcome, they were overcome with fear, with reverence, with awe in the presence of the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did they know about Jesus at this point? They, they weren't clear yet. It wasn't fully clear to them who he was. It was already public, he was already publicly identified as the Son of God at his baptism. Later in chapter 8, Peter would confess that Jesus is the Christ, God's Messiah, his anointed one. But th- this is all still developing for the disciples. They, they don't have a clear understanding yet of Jesus. And in fact, they won't until after the resurrection when things begin to lock into place. But I do think there was a connection the disciples would have been considering. And it's one that some of you may have considered as we read it. And others of you may have not. Most of the commentators uh, agree on this. I'm not making this up. But a connection between Jesus and Jonah. In Jonah 1, we read that Jonah was asleep in the boat in the midst of a raging storm, just as Jesus was. The disciples were certainly familiar with the story of Jonah, and I think it's very likely they would have been thinking about this as they asked this question in verse 41. There are a number of similarities, but there are even more differences, in fact. 
Jonah encountered the storm while running from God, but Jesus encountered the storm while doing God's will. Jonah is awakened from his sleep in the boat so that he might call out to his God for help, which he does. But Jesus is awakened in order to demonstrate that he is God and that he does command the waves and the wind. Jonah was thrown overboard in order to calm the sea. Jesus simply speaks a word, and the sea is calmed. And just as the disciples feared a great fear, the text tells us in verse 41, we read at the end of Jonah chapter 1 that the men on board the ship feared the Lord exceedingly after they saw him calm the sea. Now here's the question that I think was in some form rattling around in the disciples' head. How much more ought we to fear this one who is a greater than Jonah? Why should they not be afraid? We can be sure that they knew Psalm 107, which we read together this morning, and it tells us that the Lord commands and raises the stormy wind and lifts up the waves of the sea, and then in response to the cries of his people, quiets them down. And they stand in this boat And they knew that it's the Lord who does this. It's the Lord who responds to his people. It's the Lord who commands the wind and the sea. And so now, what are they thinking? Is this the Lord? Is this the Lord our God standing here in the midst of this boat with us? They thought they were afraid of the storm. Now they really had something to be afraid of. And I would say to you this morning, if you have never had this true fear of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you may not know him. As C.S. Lewis has so capably illustrated in his Narnia stories, Jesus Christ is far too great to be tame and safe. In fact, we see something in this narrative three times. There's a word, great, that plays a significant role here. In verse 37, there was a great storm. In verse 39, there was a great calm. In verse 41, a great fear. A great storm was brought to a great calm, and that led to a great fear. What do you think when you come to church every week? I wonder that sometimes. What do you think as you gather here in this room? What do you think as you read the scriptures, as you pray, as you consider what it means to belong to God? Do you think of him as the Holy One who speaks and melts the earth, who calms the waves with a word, who commands them with such authority, and who does so on behalf of his people? God is a great and mighty God. And the response when we come face to face with Jesus Christ is this fear. See, the disciples discovered that there was one thing being, there was one thing more frightening than being in that boat on that lake in that storm. And that one thing that was more frightening than that was being on that boat, in that boat, on that lake, in the presence of the one who hushed the storm with a word. 
And this is why they asked in great fear, who then is this? And that is the question that this text presents to every one of you today. How do you answer that question? Who then is this? Is he simply a man? Is he simply a teacher? You cannot take this seriously and give that answer to the question. Who then is this? That the wind and the sea obey him. The condition of your soul, the status that you have before God, your eternal destiny depends on your answer to this question, who then is this? That's not just a question that they had to wrestle with. It's a question that you and I and everyone must wrestle with and must answer. Who then is this? Who is he? You're here this morning in the midst of God's people. You're hearing God's word read and preached. You're hearing him praised. You're tasting something of the goodness of life in God's family. And God is here. God is in our midst. How will you respond? You will be responsible. You'll be held accountable for all the sermons you've heard, for this sermon, this sermon about Jesus Christ and his grace and his glory. What will you do with this man? How will you respond? This Jesus who commanded the wind and the sea on that day will come on the clouds one day. And at that moment... Everyone will have the right answer to the question, who then is this? There will be no confusion about Jesus Christ on that day. But there will be for many simply an acknowledgement, a resigned admission that yes, he is the Lord. But for them it will be too late. Everyone on that day will be able to answer this question about Jesus' identity, but I want and we your pastors, your elders, believers here at Redeemer, we want every one of you here to be able to answer that question today. Who then is this man that even wind and sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes. We pray that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ that we would fall down before him and say, my Lord and my God, and that we would find from him life that is eternal, joy that is imperishable, a hope that can never fade or be taken away, and that whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in this life, we could know ourselves to be in the hand of him who rules them all. And to know that he has come for me, to know that he lives for me, that he rules and reigns for me, and to know that nothing can separate me from his love. Lord, grant to us this faith. We thank you for your tender mercy, for your grace, which has come down to redeem us. And we pray that you would equip us and prepare us and keep us looking and longing for the day when he comes again in his glory. And we ask it in his name. Amen.